Good morning, church. My name is Patricia Kiopuhiva. I have been attending Realty for two and a half years. I was part of Battle for 15 years. I served with a food pantry. Today's text is from Mark 10, 1 through 16. Please follow along as I read the passage aloud for us. Jesus then left the place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him and was his custom. He taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote this law. Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such all this. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. This is God's word. Glory to God. Amen. Thank you. Good morning, church. It is so good to be with you this morning. I'm just going to drop this guy right down there. How about that? And uh, I am glad that you chose to be here, even though it's Super Bowl Sunday. So you thought the Super Bowl was later, but we got the Super Bowl for you now, okay? We have baptisms, we have bread, journals, these things. Look, guys, this is like, you could pick this up in some hipster shop on Valencia. This thing is nice. This paper is like, this is, this is the real deal. So you will want to grab one of these after the service for sure. So, and another thing very exciting that we have to talk about is a divorce. <laughs> See, Dave didn't even want to be at the church today to teach on this, so he gave me this topic. 
So if you open your Bibles, and I really do encourage you to open, this is called a Bible. It is made of paper. And this will be really important for you guys to have a real Bible this morning. So if you're in the pews down here, uh, you can grab one in front of you, turn to Mark chapter 10. If you're in the balcony up top, we have tables on either side and you will see Bibles there. Feel free to grab one. If you do not have a Bible, take this home. You are getting double gifted today. Bread journal and Bible, okay? So congrats on coming to church on Super Bowl Sunday. (laughs) So we're gonna talk about divorce this morning. And, you know, I just wanna acknowledge in the room right now, when we open the Bible and you see this little header at the top and it says divorce. I just want to say something. First of all, that's not actually part of scripture. Okay. They added these little headers later on to give us some navigation points as we move throughout the Bible. Okay. So that's not actually part of scripture, but it does say divorce. And I want to acknowledge that this word and this topic can bring up a lot of different emotions and feelings in people. Depending on where you're from, I mean, you might be like me. You might have a situation like mine when, um, when my parents had me, my mom had already been divorced. She had a child from her first marriage. My parents got together, they had me, and they were divorced when I was a toddler. And then my mom went on to get remarried for a third time to a man who had been previously divorced. He had three kids from that marriage. They were married for a few years and got divorced again. My dad went on to get remarried to a woman who had three kids from two prior marriages. By God's grace, they're still together today. But when I was a kid, I had nowhere to look for a picture of marital faithfulness. And I grew to hate divorce. It was such an emotional thing for me. So I know that some of you might have an experience like mine. You maybe heard the passage today, opened your Bible, saw divorce, you said, "Mm -mm, no, I'm gonna get to the Super Bowl early, right? That may be some of you. Some of you might have had an incredible um, example of parents growing up and, you know, maybe this isn't something that's as emotional for you. Others of you, um, you know, maybe you've been divorced and you carry this in a very unique way, this emotion. Others of you, you may be, maybe you're single, um, maybe you're even celibate, you feel called to stay single for your life, committed to God, and you're like, nah, this doesn't really apply to me, you know, I can skip over this passage. But wherever you are this morning, I'm about to tell you something that's pretty surprising. I think they got the header wrong, okay? This passage is not primarily about divorce. Okay, this passage is not primarily about divorce. There's something a lot more here. So, and it's actually critical to our understanding of who Jesus is critical to his character. So watch this, no matter where you are today, no matter your situation, no matter your background, 
I want to encourage you to stay locked in this morning, okay? Stay locked in. God has something for you through this text this morning. So with that, let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that teaches us more about who you are, about your character. God, I pray this morning that you would teach us from your word, that you would grow us to be more like Jesus, that you would allow us to hear your truth this morning from your scriptures, God. God, open our ears. Speak through me. Keep me from error. And God, teach us and change us this morning. Do not let us leave here the same as when we came in. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we can't dive straight into our text this morning without getting a little context Okay, so I'm not going to do a full overview of the book of Mark up until this point. I think Melissa did a wonderful job on that last week. So if you were here, you got the chance to hear um, Melissa's sermon. It's wonderful. If you weren't, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. You can find it on the podcast. Uh, she did a great job doing like a big like flyover of where we've been up until this point when we open to chapter 10. Okay, but what I am going to do is I'm gonna give a little understanding of this little context that we're in right now. See, see, Mark is a master storyteller. He is a master storyteller, and he has a reason for including this passage in his book, okay? So I wanna give us a little context of where we're jumping in today. At the beginning of chapter 10, when we open our Bibles there, we're actually being dropped in the middle of a little sub-narrative. It's like a story within a story, right? We're being dropped in the middle of a little sub-narrative. And I believe this section starts in chapter 8, verse 22, okay? So if you have your Bible, chapter 8, 22, flip it over a couple pages, you see, that's where I think this little sub-narrative starts, and then it takes us all the way up to the beginning of chapter 11, Okay, so stick with me here. In 8.22, we see the story of Jesus healing a blind man. It's kind of an odd story, though, because the first time he touches him, he doesn't really see clearly. It's kind of like you think Jesus messed up, right? He says, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. It's like, that's not what people should look like, right? He has, he has like blurry vision, right? He was blind and he can now see something, but it's not clear yet. And then Jesus touches him again and it says, then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. See, this little healing story is actually setting the stage for this little sub-narrative section in the book of Mark, okay? Immediately after this story, in chapter 8, verse 27, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. This is a seismic shift in the book up until this point, okay? It's, it's, 
up until this point, Mark has been trying to show that Jesus has authority over heaven and earth. He is the son of God. He is the savior of the world. He himself is the Messiah. And in 8, 27 to 30, we see that Peter and the disciples, they finally get it, right? They finally get it. But just like the twice-touched blind man, they see, but they don't see clearly yet. Right? They were blind. They couldn't see at all. Now they see that Jesus is the Messiah, but they don't fully understand what his kingdom is like. Their vision is not clear yet. Immediately after Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, the first thing Jesus does is try to clarify their vision, okay? And what he does to do this is he predicts his death and resurrection three times. He wants to level set expectations for the disciples, right? right? They're thinking, you're the Messiah, you're the king. We're gonna live the cushy life. Come on, baby, roll out the red carpet. This is great. Jesus is saying, mm, that's, that's not it. He wants them to understand what his kingdom is really like. It's not what they think, it's a different kind of way. So Mark dives into this little sub-narrative. We're gonna, we're gonna put this up on the screen so you can kind of follow along with this. So, right, we talked about the twice-touched blind man. This sets the stage for us, okay? It's a little foreshadowing. And then Peter's confession shows us that the disciples see, but not clearly. It's still a little hazy to them. Then we have this series where Jesus predicts his death and resurrection three times. And after each prediction, there is something important that Mark tries to teach us about what it means to follow Jesus. See, after Jesus predicts his death, the first time Mark teaches us that following Jesus involves suffering. He says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected in 831. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross, a form of suffering, right? And follow me in 834. The son of man must suffer much and be rejected in 912. Then he predicts his death again a second time. And Mark teaches us that following Jesus involves sacrifice. And what I mean by sacrifice here is, is how Webster Dictionary defines it, as the surrender of something for the sake of something else. Okay, the surrender of something for the sake of something else. Okay, so in this section, Jesus says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. We also have our passage today, which we're going to get to in a moment. But he also says in this section, go sell everything you have and give to the poor in 1021, the surrender of something for something else. Then Jesus predicts his death for a third and final time. And Mark teaches us that following Jesus involves service. He says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant in 1043. He says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve in 1045. And once Mark finally finishes showing us that the kingdom of Jesus is a different type of 
kingdom, that following him involves suffering. It involves sacrifice. It involves service. Then and only then can their vision become clear and we see Jesus welcomed as the true king as he is received at the gates of Jerusalem with shouts of Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom in 11, 9 and 10. Isn't that incredible? Mark is like a literary genius. Like he just like weaves this little thing in there and we drop in in chapter 10 and think he's talking about divorce. He's got so much more to talk to about us and he weaves this in here in a beautiful way and it's critical for us to understand this when we open our Bibles to this passage, okay? So in the context of this beautiful little sub-narratives, that's where we are. We're dropped into this today. And when we pick up our Bibles and turn to 10, Mark chapter 10, we start reading, we're picking up in the middle of the section where Mark is intentionally trying to show us that following Jesus involves sacrifice. Giving up something for the sake of something else. So now we have some context for where we are, right? So let's, let's dive in to the scriptures, okay? So as we work our way through the text today, I've got three points for us. We're gonna first talk about hardness, then we'll talk about faithfulness, and finally, we'll talk about openness. So let's pick up right in verse one of chapter 10. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? It says some Pharisees came and tested him. See, the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the time, and they weren't too sure about this Jesus guy. They didn't really like Jesus and they thought, hey, what can we do to test him, to really kind of like get him? You know, like what's the hardest thing that we can ask him about that he might just kind of mess up on his answer, right? I got it. Let's ask him about divorce, of course, right? So they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus responds, he says, what did Moses command you? I love that he did this. See, see, the Pharisees, they knew the law of Moses so well. They knew everything that it said. So you can kind of like see them visually. When he asks this question, they're like, ha, ha. see, we know this. I know this answer. You know, kind of pridefully puffing up their chest. You know, they say, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus says this, he says, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. Another translation says, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. See, this word hardness is actually very uncommon in the scriptures. When, uh, when, when the Bible was originally written, it was written in, um, the New Testament rather, was written in Greek, the Greek language, okay? 
And the Greek word here for hardness is only found three times in the entire New Testament. Right? So when Jesus chooses very specifically to use this word, there is a reason why he wants to use this here. And when a word is this uncommon, it really kind of piques my interest, right? It makes me want to dig a little deeper, like what does that actually mean? So the Greek word for hardness is sclerocardia. And we have a definition on the screen. It means destitution of spiritual perception. Now, I'm not the smartest cookie in the cookie jar. I don't know about you guys, but that doesn't really do much for me. So I had to go like look at the definition of the definition, okay? So I looked at, okay, so what, is, what does that first word mean? Destitution, let's, let's look at that. It means poverty so extreme that one lacks the means to provide for oneself. In, in perception, it means the ability to see hear or become aware to something through the senses. Jesus is saying this. They were in such a poor spiritual state, such spiritual poverty, that they were literally unable to hear or become aware of the truth. Even more, they were unable to provide for themselves the means to be able to hear the truth that they needed to hear. Isn't this why Jesus came? This is exactly why Jesus came. Right? He came to be the sacrifice for our sins so that we could receive what we truly need, that we could hear finally the truth of God's word and have the means through the spirit to become aware, to wake up, receive the truth, and walk in it. See, by the grace of God, through the death and resurrection of Christ, we do not have to have hard hearts anymore. Jesus is saying, you had hard hearts, but I am here now. I am here now. This is what was predicted in the Old Testament in Ezekiel. It says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, your hard heart, and give you a heart of flesh. But that's not all. See, if you were a Jewish person at the time and you heard Jesus say this, your mind would have immediately been transported to Psalm 95. You heard hardness of heart, Psalm 95. Whoa, here I am. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. 
in this passage in Psalm 95 would have uh, brought them to remember the story in Exodus chapter 17, which the Pharisees were very familiar with. Again, remember, they are experts in the law. They know the stories, right? So this little story about Israel, this, is, this happens in Exodus 17 after they have left Egypt, but before they have received the law from Moses, okay? So in between this little time, this happens in Exodus 17. The story says this. The whole Israelite community, community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to, your, to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled with, against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt and make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? See, when Jesus said it was because of the hardness of your hearts that Moses wrote you this law, this story would have come to mind just like this for the Pharisees. All of these emotions would have been stirred up in them. They would have been thinking about this. See, the Israelites in this story were asking, where is God? Is he with us or not? They were quarreling with each other and they were testing God. They didn't believe that he would do as he said he would do. They had no trust in him. They thought they had been abandoned. Isn't this such an accurate picture of a struggling relationship? This really makes sense to me why Jesus would take us on this little Bible detour, right, uh, when he's talking about divorce here. See, when you stop trusting your spouse, when you're constantly quarreling and fighting with each other, when you're testing each other, when you feel abandoned, you stop believing the best in them. That's a slippery slope for any relationship. See, when we have hard hearts, it's impossible to believe the best in others, in your spouse, in your friends. See, in Mark 10, 2, the Pharisees ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And in verse three, Jesus very specifically asks, what did Moses command you? See, the Pharisees are looking for the fine print in the contract, right? Is it lawful? Do we have to do it this way? 
They're looking for the fine print. Where is the loophole so that I can exploit this thing for my own personal desires? They're looking for a way out of marriage. But marriage was never meant to be about finding a way out. From the beginning, it was meant to be about faithfulness. And this brings us to our next point. See, Jesus' response to the Pharisees brings up a ton of Old Testament imagery, as, as we were just talking about. Uh, but he's not finished. You know, he, he really, I mean, he hasn't even started to answer their question yet. And in verse 6, he finally gets there. He's like, okay, I'll start answering your question now. But he's not done with the Old Testament imagery, okay? He says, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. But at the beginning of creation, God. Now, most of you, when you probably read this passage, you probably don't read it that way. You probably kind of read it through, but the beginning of creation, God. But when Jesus said this, again, the Pharisees would have been like, whoa, he's making a statement. At the beginning of creation, God. He's finally start ready, getting ready to answer their question. And he says, at the beginning of creation, God. This is meant to transport us back to Genesis chapter one, verse one, where it says, in the beginning, God. Jesus is saying this. You had hard hearts. You were quarreling and testing God. You forgot God. And you thought God had forgotten you. You thought he had abandoned you. You were looking for any way out of this relationship with him possible. You were over it. But since the beginning, God was with you. God has never left you. God has never forgotten you. God has never abandoned you. You thought he had abandoned you, but he has never abandoned you. You were looking for any way out of this relationship possible, but God has always been in this relationship. God has always been there for you. As scripture says, the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. See, you were looking for a way out, but since the beginning of time, God has been inviting you in. This is who our God is. Jesus goes on, he says, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus is calling our attention to a higher standard here, okay? So he goes back to Genesis 2. 
to the creation story and reminds us what God's original intention was. Then he continues to raise the bar when he speaks to his disciples next and he says this. He says, it says in the text, it says, when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. And he answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. See, it was understood at the time that adultery was punishable by death. Okay, Leviticus 20.10 says, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. This was not disputed. This was understood. Jesus is saying that if anyone divorces their spouse and marries another, they deserve death. And this was a sharp departure from the commonly held belief of divorce at the time, okay? The prevailing view of divorce was taught by a rabbinic school that that actually believed that a man could divorce his wife for pretty much any reason. It was a very, very loose interpretation that said they can pretty much divorce if the wife was unpleasing to the husband. So this teaching of Jesus would have been seen as incredibly strict and likely shocking to the Pharisees when they heard this. See, it's similar to what we saw in chapter nine from last week that you know when Jesus is calling us to cut off our hands, and cut off our feet and pluck out our eyes. It's similar to what we see in Matthew when Jesus says, if a man looks at a woman lustfully, then he commits adultery with her. See, Jesus is using this hyperbole here, and he's using it for a very, very specific reason. He is so passionate about this topic. But... Why is Jesus so passionate about this, right? Why does it seem like he's kind of like super amped up right now, you know? Why is that? In Ephesians chapter five, we get a little insight into this. It says this, it says, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies he who loves his wife loves himself after all no one ever hated their own body but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's the same passage that we're being quoted today in Mark 10. And it says, this is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. See, the marriage relationship is meant to be a mirror it's meant to reflect Jesus's relationship with his people, the church. So when we understand that marriage is meant to be a mirror, 
It's meant to mirror Christ's relationship with his people. We understand why Jesus was very passionate about this, right? Jesus gives his life to remain faithful to his people. Remember the sub-narrative that we talked about at the beginning, right? This is what it's about. Jesus predicts his death three times. He's going to the cross for his people. That's how much he loves his church. That is his level of faithfulness. Ultimately, Jesus is teaching us this, okay? The Pharisees are asking the wrong question. They should not be concerned about finding a loophole in the law of Moses, right? They should be concerned with understanding and knowing the character of God. In our community group this past week, we we each shared what our favorite characteristic of God is. Right, it was great. I mean, some of the things people shared, they, they said, loving kindness. They said, forgiveness. Faithfulness. This is who our God is. Now, married couples, listen, this is for you, Okay. Our marriages should embody these characteristics. Christian author Gary Thomas has this wonderful quote. He says, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? It's meant to make us holy meant to make us more like Jesus, the faithful one. So if you're, if you're here this morning and you're struggling in your marriage right now, I want to encourage you, you should not be asking, how can I get out? But be asking, how can we stay in? What can we do to keep this together, to more accurately reflect the relationship between Jesus and his people? What can we do to stay faithful as Jesus has been faithful to us? He's always been there since the beginning of creation. His love for you is faithful. My friend Kim Vollendorf a Christian author and podcaster, she, she, she says this. I, I love how she refers to the love of God. She refers to it as love regardless. She says this. She says, loving someone the way that God loves us requires making hard choices to put the other person's needs ahead of our own. Love regardless means loving someone even when they aren't particularly lovable. Because we're all selfish, we aren't always going to feel like making the hard, selfless choices that true love requires. That's why true love requires commitment, not just feelings. 
Loving feelings can come and go, but what distinguishes love regardless from love if and love because is a commitment to love the way God loves us. See, we should be a people who are committed to loving the way God loves us. Many of us are probably familiar with the term FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. Uh, this, this term was coined by venture capitalist Patrick McGinnis, and, uh, you know, but fewer people are aware of another term that he coined, which is FOBO. FOBO. He says this, FOBO is the evil brother of FOMO, and it can ruin your life. FOBO stands for fear of a better option. Some of you felt that. You're like, <laughs> that's me, right? So many people in our culture, right, this is real. Fear of a better option. It keeps us from committing to something. There's so many people I know who, who have never married because of fear of a better option. And there's a lot of married couples I know who ended in divorce because of fear of a better option. But here, this is for everyone here, watch. Married, single, wherever you stand. Listen, for some of you, fear of a better option Maybe such a controlling thought pattern in your life that it makes it hard to make any decisions at all. It's destructive. Friends may ask you to go grab burritos on Friday. You're like, I can probably make that. <laughs> Unless I get a better invitation. I mean, in reality, you have nothing else going on, but, you know, if somebody invites you to do something more fun, I might not be able to make it anymore, right? See, this type of thinking makes it harder to really press in and enjoy friendships. To really press in and enjoy relationships. When you're constantly afraid that there might be a better option out there, you never really fully give yourself to those around you and give your full self to them. Patrick McGinnis says this, he says, FOBO is a learned behavior, but it can be unlearned as well. And while you might think that cutting down your options will mean you'll suffer, you'll find it is actually entirely liberating. Now, I, I don't know if Patrick is a Christian or not, um, but this idea is exactly what Jesus is getting at here in this passage, okay? Commitment and faithfulness is not intended to make you suffer. See, faithfulness doesn't cut down on your options. It actually liberates you. 
It sets you free. Watch this. Jesus, right here, he's not talking about marriage. He's not talking about divorce. He's talking about following him. Being faithful to him. Being committed to him. Committing to Jesus above other options. And ultimately, when we believe in the faithfulness of Jesus, when we trust that he is faithful to us, it allows us to be open. And that brings us to our final point. Let's, let's go back to our text, okay? Mark chapter 10, let's pick up in verse 13. The people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on them and blessed them. See, after Jesus concludes his teaching on divorce, right, and Mark includes this little scene, it kind of seems out of left field, right? It's like, Mark, you're taking us on a journey over here. Like, what is this little kid's story about? But it's not out of context. Remember, Mark, the master storyteller, has a reason why he puts this here. See, the standard that Jesus calls us to is so high, absolute faithfulness. It leaves us begging the question, which is actually asked in a few short verses, who then can be saved? Who can do this? To which Jesus answers, he says, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. See, we're left with this challenging standard from Jesus' teaching in verses 5 through 12, but Mark reminds us of the character of God in verses 13 through 16. Jesus is a loving God that welcomes us into his arms. Verse 16 says, And he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on them and blessed them. See, the, the, the disciples were saying, you know, get these kids out of here. They're kind of messing things up, right? But Jesus is saying, no, no, no. You don't see clearly yet. Let them come to me. See, this is our God constantly calling us in, inviting us in, calling us to his faithful love. Right? When we trust God's faithful love, we can be like little children in his presence, fully open to just trust him, to fall at his feet, to receive from him, content in his presence. Because of the faithful love of Jesus, because he's so committed to you that he went to the cross, you no longer have to have hard hearts, right? 
you can be fully open, bringing all of yourself before him and trusting that he will do what he says he will do. Falling into his arms like a little child. Even though following Jesus involves suffering, involves sacrifice, involves service, you can commit yourself to Jesus and know that he will never leave you. He will be with you. And as scripture reminds us in John 10, 10, he will give you life to the full. Let's pray. Father, thank you. God, thank you for your word that reminds us you have been faithful. You have never left us. You will never abandon us. God, may we be open before you, Lord. May we be open to receive your faithful love, to walk in faith, to love as you have loved us. In Jesus' name.